You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Zoop Good Really Good, which makes premium, flavor-forward broths and broth concentrates crafted with home cooks in mind. For more information, visit www.zoopbroth.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome renowned pastry chef Claudia Fleming. In this episode, we'll talk to Claudia about pastry and desserts place in today's world, her new cookbook, Delectable. And we'll hear Claudia's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. As we just covered in episode 171 with baking guru Rose Leaving Berenbaum, Julia was into baking, so much so that we're returning to the subject, looking at the other side of the pan, so to speak. Julia loved learning from all chefs, whether savory or pastry. She featured both kinds on her television programs, notably in the Cooking with Master Chefs and Baking with Julia series. The whole idea was for the chefs to share their tricks of the trade and innovations so you could try them at home. That's what Julia did herself, and that was her vision for what she hoped television programs would do, motivate people to get off the couch and in front of the stove. Someone who has equally inspired home bakers and professional pastry chefs alike is Claudia Fleming. Claudia is a pastry chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. After training as a dancer, she got her start with Julia Child Award recipient Danny Meyer at his groundbreaking Union Square Cafe. That first job led to stints in various Union Square Hospitality Group kitchens, notably at Gramercy Tavern, where she gained her reputation working alongside top chef Tom Calicchio. Claudia also apprenticed in Paris, including at the famed Patisserie Fauchon. After marrying Chef Jerry Hayden, the couple opened the North Fork Table and Inn on Long Island, which they ran together for more than a decade. Post-pandemic, she's returned to New York City in a new role at Danny Meyers Union Square Hospitality Group. Claudia's accolades include having been named Outstanding Pastry Chef by the James Beard Foundation, as well as one of the 10 Best Pastry Chefs in America by Pastry Art and Design. Her recipes have been published in magazines from Town and Country to Vogue and Martha Stewart Living. You may have seen her on TV in The Barefoot Contessa, Beat Bobby Flay, Judging Chopped, or Top Chef Just Desserts. Her first and up until now only cookbook, The Last Course, written with Melissa Clark, who we talked to in episode 88, 
became a touchstone for pastry chefs since its publication in 2001. It was reissued in 2019. Claudia joins us today to tell us all about her newest cookbook, Delectable, and share her insights on pastry and dessert in today's rapidly changing food world. Welcome to the podcast, Claudia. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me, Todd. What a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. So I read that you said once in in another interview, I think, that technique is the basis of creativity. And that just sounded like something very Julia to me. So when and how did you perfect your technique and discover you were well-suited to being a pastry chef? Well, I, I think that I would never say that I perfected technique because I don't know that that's possible. Um, I, I, I like mastering better than perfecting. Um, I'm not sure I'm there yet. Um, and I just feel that technique is such an important foundation no matter what you're doing in life, it just gives you a confidence to be able to be free, um, if that makes sense. Um, because you know that whatever it is you're doing, you're rooted in essential best practices for whatever craft you're pursuing. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think someone's often compared this to jazz music. Like you have to know the basics and play the notes before you can riff and do rills and and, and things like that. Be, because 100%. you need that foundation to be innovative and creative in a in a proficient way. I couldn't agree more. Well, speaking of music, I, I was fascinated that you sort of came up as a, a, a at least as a young woman, as a dancer, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure I've talked to another chef who was previously a dancer. And um, I, I think you can tell us, I think you did even like ballet, which where obviously eating is not a big part of the job. So how did... How did how do you think about how dancing kind of informed you being a chef, or do, or are they totally about faces? Oh gosh, so many similarities. Um, technique, that word again, um, and practice and repetition and teamwork um, and showtime and just so so many similarities. Um, you know, there's all that preparation for literally oftentimes seconds of pleasure. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, more and more we have recordings of dancing and videos of dancing. But, it, you know, it was so ephemeral for so long. Like you, you really couldn't capture it. And, and. Food is very much that way. Mm. Uh, yes, we have recipes. Yes, we can repeat them. But those moments and pleasures are gone once you know once your food is gone. Um, we have our memories, um, but not anything uh, concrete to uh, to help us remember, other than taste memories. I love that. I, I I think that's so true. I never thought about that before that, you know, I think cooking teachers will always tell you that you can give 12 people the same recipe in the same moment. So you're still managing for weather conditions and no two people will make it exactly the same way. And I feel like a dance performance is that way. Like you, 
will do it almost the same if you're really good every time, but there will always be a kind of spontaneity and variation in the moment. That's absolutely true. Absolutely. And well said. Thank you. Well, but I'm still curious is like, how did you, <laughs> excuse the bun, leap from being a dancer to a pastry chef? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as a struggling dancer, artist, uh, you know, as with actors and singers and dancers and uh, just any of the arts, so many of us flocked to the restaurant industry uh, years ago. I, I believe it's still the same. You know, there's, there is a lot more uh, flexibility in your schedule to be able to pursue something else. Mm. So restaurants have always been the preferred um, job of choice for many artists uh, because of that flexibility. And so I worked in restaurants and, you know, the, the day came when I decided that, you know, a professional dance career was not to be for me. And I looked around and uh, unlike many struggling artists, I loved the restaurant business. Um, I loved how dynamic it was. I it, I found it very exciting. I loved the pace. Uh, and so I looked around for, you know, reasons to stay in it. And so found my place eventually in the kitchen after many years in the front of the house. I eventually, you know, w was willing to give up the better pay in the front of the house uh, for for a career in the kitchen. And so at that point, I had asked uh, Jonathan Waxman if I could, you know, just work for free in the kitchen just to see if it was something that I was suited for. And, you know, fell in love with it and just continued to work and study in the kitchen. And here I am. So it was kind of like you'd been a server for quite a while, but you knew and were interested in the whole inner work. And you just had this idea in the back of your head, like, oh, I'd kind of like to try my hand in the kitchen. And did you know then that it was pastry or it was just getting in the kitchen you were drawn to pastry? It was just getting in the kitchen. And then um, at, I was actually working in the kitchen at Union Square at the time and went to Aspen for the summer to work with a friend. And when I came back, um, Michael Romano said to me, well, you know, there's nothing available on the line right now, but the pastry chef needs an assistant. Would that be something you want to try to do? And I said, oh, sure. You know, just any opportunity to learn anything new and different. And then I just never left the pastry department. I loved it. Um, it has a different kind of autonomy than the rest of the kitchen and I just found it um, a much more uh, satisfying place to be. So I wanted to ask you in, in just looking at your background in bio, and there are a number of top chefs who are, or restaurateurs who are male who come up in it, you know, obviously working with a, a legendary male chef and restaurateur like Tom Colicchio is so well-known and so accomplished, as well as Danny Meyer, who the foundation has recognized. 
I was curious, who are some of the women, maybe lesser known or less famous than those guys, who've helped guide your career? Uh, yeah. So when I worked at JAMS, um, there were three women in the kitchen who actually ran the kitchen for Jonathan, who were so inspirational to me. And um, they really informed and showed me that it, it really wasn't unusual. And, and later in my career, I realized how unusual it was to have three such strong, accomplished women in the kitchen. You know, Jonathan was way ahead of his time in that regard, in that he knew that women were incredibly talented, organized, efficient, um, and they were really had a great impact on me. Um, and of course, a more well-known person who had an enormous impact on me was Nancy Silverton, uh, mm. who I, to this day, adore and um, admire and respect. And just, uh, she was always very um, inspirational to me. And do, now, is this more of a peer kind of, because you're almost contemporaries or are contemporaries, did you ever work together or was it more just you were watching what she was doing and admiring her accomplishments? Mostly watching what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. She was always light years ahead of it and is many, many, many of us. Um, yeah. But just truly inspirational. Well, and I would say, I think one of the interesting things about Nancy Silverton's career is I'm sure you can go head to head, head with her on pastry making, but she was one of the earliest successful chefs to parlay her chef credentials into business in the way that, and at a level like someone like Danny Meyer. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. Well, shout out and hello to Nancy from both of us. Um, so speaking of, back to Danny Meyer, all roads leading, what, tell us about this new role that you have with his uh, Union Square Hospitality Group. Yes. Well, so I was just recently named uh, Culinary Director of Daily Provisions. And Daily Provisions is a wonderful new concept. I mean, not new in that, it, it, you know, it's at least five years old, Um but new relative to, you know, Union Square and the fine dining restaurants that Danny is well known for. It's an all day cafe. And we like to say, you know, things that you or dishes that you are familiar with done better than you thought they could be. Um, so that's our ethos. And um, we like to keep it, you know, pretty straightforward and delicious and craveable. And we, that was a great, you know, thank you very much for, because right now Daily Provisions is kind of New York City, Manhattan only, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes. But I was worried, is this, is your role indicative of that there are plans for growth or not, not yet? Not, not at the moment. At the moment we are four, we are small, but we are mighty. And um, perhaps there's growth, but for right now, we are focused and, um, you know, devoted to just making who we are right now the best that it can be. 
And your the addition of you, what what can maybe folks expect? Are you going to be tweaking the the pastries or baked goods on the menu, or are you just kind of helping them re- refine what they're already doing well? The executive pastry chef Christine Lisa is an extraordinarily talented woman, and I am working with her. I mean, we you know discuss and. Um, brainstorm and she then goes and makes wonderful, wonderful pastries and, um, and we work together, I would say. I mean, it's, it's really just a very nice working relationship. I'm not in the kitchen every day piping crullers as she is, she and her team are, um, but um, we are definitely developing and R&Ding and discussing on a daily basis. So some of it is a lot of a role of like menu collaboration and, and having someone who isn't in the weeds day to day, being able to look at the, the big picture of what's being offered and what seems yes. to be striking a chord or what new things you guys want to introduce. Exactly. Exactly right. Sounds like a fun job to me. It is a fun job. All right. After the break, we'll be right back and we'll dive into Claudia's cookbook, Delectable, which has been two decades in the making. Stay with us. Zoo Good, Really Good is proud to offer home cooks a collection of flavored forward broths and broth concentrates. Sold in glass jars, the gourmet broth lineup includes chicken, beef, veggie, and seafood broths, plus bone broths. For even more versatility, Zoop offers new culinary concentrates available in chicken bone broth, beef bone broth, and savory vegan. All flavor and no fillers, these clean label broth bases easily boost the taste of casseroles, pastas, and rice dishes. Short on time, Zoop just launched new shelf-stable premium soups for enjoying a gourmet meal in minutes. All products are free of artificial ingredients, preservatives, gluten, and GMOs, and are available at your favorite retailers across the country, plus online at zoopbroth.com. Browse recipes and learn more at zoopbroth.com or by following at zoopgoodreallygood on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back. We're talking to renowned pastry chef Claudia Fleming about her new cookbook, Delectable, Sweet and Savory Baking. So, Claudia, you might say your fans have been waiting 20 years for this book. Why did now feel like the right moment to, to get it out in the world? With time, I had time. Um, you know, for the previous twenty years, I, I've been kind of busy. I was running a restaurant for fifteen years, um, and then I guess before that, it just didn't seem as I don't know. Um, yeah, it just seemed like the right time. I, I again, you know, I had just sold the restaurant in twenty twenty, and found myself home puttering and then the pandemic happened and 
what a great opportunity. Now, was the book already planned before the pandemic or it really grew out of the time you had over the pandemic? Well, I signed um, my uh, contract in December. And and then, I mean, luckily for me, um, you know, I was given the opportunity of time to actually get it done. December of 2019? Yes, yes. December of 2019. Yeah. So I think there are some key differences for those who might be fans or familiar with the last course. There's some kind of key differences, like your approach, I feel like, to this book and who it's written for is a little bit different. Do you want, can you compare and contrast? Sure. Um, I, I think that as we mature, we get simpler. And certainly um, that happens when you're cooking. There's you know, there, it's less about, it's absolutely has nothing to do with plated desserts, right? They are just sweets and treats and, you know, almost, I don't want to say one bowl, not simple in that sense, but, but they're not composed desserts, which is really what the last course was about. It was a direct reflection of my desserts at Gramercy Tavern. And uh, delectable became about cooking in my kitchen for my friends and family and myself, um, and doing whatever it was I felt like doing and baking and eating. No, I felt like th- th- what you're known for is these sort of riffs on specific flavors really comes through, though, in the book where I, you know, the recipes seem very approachable and they don't have tens of thousands of ingredients in them. But then you're kind of like, oh, I never thought about putting those two flavors together and making them the star. <laughs> right. But of course you would. But I've not seen that before. And, right, you know, you sort of built your reputation on that level of genius insight. Oh, wow. That's very generous of you. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, I don't think I'm the only risk. person who would say that. So, but I, but I think the the book is full of them. I don't know if there's one. I'm not coming up with one to call out, but is there one that you might speak to where even you had the aha moment of like, I never really put those flavors together, but now that I have, I love it. Um, hmm, off the top of my head, let me think. Um, oh, well, it's not that I never thought of them. But, you know, it's, I always did um, associate myself with Americana more than um, other cultures and and didn't really cross into um, uh, certainly not Asian cultures, except for maybe one dessert. But um, uh, so there is a recipe for uh, mushroom uh, sticky buns, mm-hmm. which kind of I love very much. It's shiitakes with, you know, a, a miso soy honey glaze. Um, and of course, that's not unusual. Um, but I don't know that I've seen mushroom sticky buns anywhere. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of savory sticky buns. They're almost always sweet. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's always been my feeling that, you know, the savory kitchen borrows from the sweet kitchen all the time. 
Um, and I wanted to borrow from the savory kitchen and have wanted to for, you know, 30 some odd years. And so I continue to do that. And what, what's the ingredient that makes, how do you make mushrooms sticky? Well, the mushrooms themselves aren't sticky, but the glaze is sticky. Um, so it's, you know, soy and honey, which is not anything revolutionary or really even all that different. So there is a certain sweetness to it, though, compared to... Yes, yes, there is a certain, yes, yes. A savor, like a umami kind of salty, sweet, savory thing going on. Well, I was going to ask you about this later, but while we're here, I'll stick on it. Because the other thing that I love discovering, um, which is not readily apparent from your name, um, is that you have Italian heritage that you feel is like kind of influenced you as a as a cook and that you had this recipe for, um, I would say, pizzelles. I don't know what, do you call them yes. pizzelles? Pizzelle. We call them pizzelle growing up. Yeah. Pizzelle. And not only that, they're usually sweet and they're very like mildly sweet traditionally and yes. if, for people who don't know they look like kind of like star like lace kind of cookies or biscuits and you have one for gouda pizzelli could you tell us about uh, you know that's that's one of those un, i don't think it has that many ingredients but it's a very unexpected and i'm sure would shock and awe several italians in italy oh my goodness them. i can't even imagine what my grandmother would say um probably not the least bit pleased with me but uh, it turns out that they make an incredible, because if you're familiar with them, they're very thin and crispy and lacy, and they lent themselves beautifully to, you know, putting cheese in them. And so you just have these crispy, cheesy wafers, and they're delightful. Well, I think it's so fascinating to do that. And I think there was a story that I, I, I want you to, to share of how you made that connection. But I'm just thinking about also for, for those maybe who haven't, who eat Italian food or maybe make it occasionally, but have never been taught it or researched it. Italian food is very governed by rules. This goes with that. It does not go with this. Or the best example is Italians don't put cheese on fish or fish pasta. Right. Why? Right. They couldn't even tell you they don't. It's a rule. So how, how did you find yourself connecting Gouda to Bizelle? Um, Well, again, always in an effort to try to make something sweet into something savory. You know, I think I've said often in my past, I'm, I am somewhat of a frustrated cook. So there's always the desire to... Um, make sweet things savory. Um, and I, I, I wish I knew how things like that happened. Um, you know, my, uh, my co-author, Kathy Young, is also a savory cook. And so she was always encouraging and coming up with wonderful ideas to borrow again from the savory kitchen. And so through so much brainstorming and, you know, discussing, it's hard to remember the genesis of, of where ideas come from. Um, but I, I know for sure that one was definitely one of her influences. And maybe you could, what do they, do they taste a little like 
at least in your mouth, like a gougere or because no. the other thing no. we should say is you need, you can't, I think you cannot make bizelle without a specific bizelle maker. So for those who like, what's That's the correct. kind of, what does the traditional fizelle sort of taste like in your mouth? And then how does the Gouda one change that? Um, well, there is, the only relationship really is the texture. Um, because it really becomes, with the Gouda in it, it really becomes like a very thin, delicate cheese. it So it's mm. more of a cracker. Right. Mm. It's more of a crispy cracker as opposed to a puffy gougere, eggy texture. Mm, mm. Um, and a traditional pizzella is um, almost, okay, if I'm using cheese it as a comparison for the savory, <laughs> I'm going to use Nilla wafers as the um, familiar sort of flavor profile for the sweet pizzelle that's, you know, infinitely more delicate and beautiful than a vanilla wafer. No, no offense to Nabisco. Sorry. I think that's great promotion from Nabisco. <laughs> you guys mentioned two of, two of their illustrious uh, brands. Um, so, okay. No, that, that's really helpful. I, I, I'm glad we talked about this. I just love uh, that kind of, uh, unexpected inclusion of the Bizelle and and then the Gouda version. So I also was really struck by, uh, as would be sort of standard with modern cookbooks, the photographs are beautiful, but there's lots of lots. There's several photographs of you at your, what appears to me to be a very basic everyday, not fancy, not professional level stove. And was that a... Del Obviously, it was what you were really using, but was it a deliberate yes. thing that you did to say to people, you don't need a restaurant kitchen to produce good good stuff for your family? Very much so. Very much so. My, um, I remember when Jerry and I, my husband, my late husband, Jerry Hayden, and I moved to the North Fork and we bought this house that was an absolute disaster um, and would was going to take lots of elbow grease and resources to turn it into what two chefs would deserve as a kitchen, um, it, which never happened. We always had an electric stove and it was just not anything anyone would expect two professional chefs to work in at home. I would say, you know what, if you know how to cook, you can rub two sticks together and make fire and Voila, like you don't need fancy equipment to cook. I love that message because I think you are by far the 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 common denominator of so many cookbook authors and chefs that I've talked to who do not have a, a large Viking or wolf range in their house. And that I feel like there's almost this incongruence between the yes. beautiful fancy kitchens with the professional level right. ranges that we see on TV are unused, mm -hmm. except maybe mm -hmm. by staff members and chefs right. are all right. cooking on wonky old electric stoves or, and, and I think that, I think it's such a great message so that nobody needs to feel yeah. like, well, I can't get in the kitchen until I have the right appliances. That's right. I think it's it's no secret that working in a kitchen is not a lucrative profession. <laughs> <laughs> and so we are the last ones to have the, the best 
most beautiful state of the art equipment unfortunately but but i think i think right the message we started with is it can still be done you don't have to have it you just need the patience and the 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 focus yep absolutely true nice pans and knives are i think an essential um yeah yeah it's hard it's 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 very hard to do a job well in the kitchen with, with with dull or inferior knives although you also don't have to have the most expensive set of japanese knives either no they just need to be sharp knives you could even you could as you could go to an estate sale and buy someone else's knives and just make sure they're sharp right that's correct yes as long as they were for sale at the estate sale (laughs) (laughs) take knives that are not 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 meant to be full um no one would do that are there other recipes that you really wanted as you know especially we're about to head into the, the 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 big marathon of the holiday season are there things that like you discovered that you created for the book or recipes you revived that you kind of know you'll be making cuz you've just fallen fallen in love or re-fallen in love with them um well first comes to mind is the gingerbread cake which uh, is probably one of the most popular and remade uh, uh, recipes in the last course by many people I speak with. Um, And so that uh, found a new iteration in Delectable as a layer cake. Mm. And so it's a beautiful, festive holiday cake Um, and it stays moist for days. So you don't necessarily need to eat the whole thing at your holiday meal. (laughs) Um, although, um, I dare you to not, (laughs) but, um, that's one of my favorites. I have to say, um, let's see what else. Oh, the, uh, the, uh, sweet potato rolls also I love. For the holidays. Another savory and sweet combo. Yes, yes, with miso glaze. Oh, the toffee. I do love the toffee for holidays. And it makes a great, great gift. Also, the other thing that I find that, and I just had the best neighbors um, in Southold um, who I fed all throughout this, this process, and they were all very grateful, and I grateful for their feedback. But... Um, my dear neighbors, um, Jim and AJ, uh, adore candy grapefruit rind. And they are something that can be done well, well ahead and, you know, preserved. And they're just, I find them to be the most wonderful end to a meal because they're slightly bitter and sweet and chewy. And they're like the ultimate gummy bear. And I just, I love them. Well, and I I was anticipating you were going to say, oh, doing candied rind too. You can you can do that in a big batch and then give it in small packages as as you know cost effective holiday gifts. Oh, exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you for <laughs> articulating for me. Yeah, um, and also to make it extra special, if you dip them in chocolate, then it just becomes you know. oh, the best. Impossible to stop. Although, do you dip grapefruit? I would do cho- like more likely orange, or do 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 grapefruit I don't know in chocolate? The grapefruit, I do. I do. Uh-huh. I love it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good to know. I'll have to try it. 
So b- before we go to break, I just wanted to get your thoughts, you know, given the news cycle right now, it really seems like we're inevitably headed into a period of greater austerity, whether it's a lot of austerity mm-hmm. or a little, mm-hmm. I don't know, which I think will also impact how and is already impacting how much and where and how frequently people are eating out. Are you seeing this at Daily Provisions too about the choices customers are making or what kind of thing they're wanting given sort of where things are going economically? I think one of the wonderful things about Daily Provisions is that it's not fine dining, but it is fine food. And so people, um, I don't even want to say treat themselves. I mean, it's affordable for many, many people to eat regularly, hence the name. And, um, And it's one of the things that attracted me to it in that it it's good food for more people it's much less exclusive than a fine dining experience which we will always have but for celebrations and special occasions and you know daily provisions is just reminds us that we can eat well all the time um and yeah, it's, it's, um, but I, I don't find people skimping. I mean, they, you know, most sandwiches get a crawler or a cookie or a muffin. I mean, so people, I think also with that muffin and crawler and cookie feel like that's their treat. Um, and I don't know, it just feels like a simple pleasure that we all observe. And it seems like people are feeling that, that we all deserve those simple pleasures. Mm, I think those are great messages Julia would heartily endorse. (laughs) All right, after the break, we're going to hear Claudia's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, you can tweet us at JuliaChildJCF. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's Mortal Words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she might have inspired them in their career. All right, Claudia, what's your Julia moment? Well, when I was working at Tribeca Grill, Julia came into the restaurant and, you know, thereby came into the kitchen because I don't believe there was a restaurant that she walked into that she didn't walk into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um and so she came into the kitchen and, you know, just her stature alone was so commanding. And, and, but at the same time, she was so disarming because she, her curiosity was just so genuine and so charming. You know, she, she looked at, 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 at the moment I was, I remember distinctly, I was making uh, Tribeca Grill's famous uh, pear tart 
and it was a, a pear tart with a concentric circle around it with, you know, little roasted pear cubes that held up the outer circle. So it was kind of like Saturn-y looking. And she was just fascinated. She's like, oh my, how did you do that? How did you even think of doing that? And she, it just, her curiosity was just so beautiful. And um, I'll always remember it. Oh, I love that. That's that's lovely. And 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 um, I don't think we've had anyone mention her curi- you know, just that level of just innate curiosity that that yeah, I I thank you, thank you for bringing that up and and I w- I felt like I was right there with you in the Tribeca kitchen with Julia. Yes, thank I you. mean she just found anything she hadn't seen before as a revelation, right? Oh my goodness, how how you know, wow. And uh she was delighted and delightful. Well, Claudia, thank you for sharing that Julia moment with us and and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. If you want to keep up with more from Claudia, she's at Chef Claudia Fleming on Instagram. The new book is Delectable, Sweet and Savory Baking by Claudia Fleming with Catherine Young and photographs by Johnny Miller. It's out now from our friends at Random House. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. And follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for all the latest news, including a sneak peek at the Inn at Maddie's Tavern, new restaurant in Los Olivos in the San Ynez Valley. That's on November 13th, and we'll feature wines from Liquid Farm, as well as light bites from the restaurant. I can tell you after two days, it's almost sold out already. So if you have any interest, go right now to at SB Culinary Experience. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Selkold. And today, our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network was Kevin Chang Barnum. Everyone else is on holiday. Our theme is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.